When you watch President Trump speak, it can feel a little like watching a high wire act at the circus. With each word, he dances closer to an edge. At least that's what it felt like to me yesterday at the White House press conference that was supposed to be about American manufacturing. Okay, you have any questions on uh, how well our manufacturing business is doing, Press? When Trump took questions, that is when the tightrope walk really began. Right off the bat, he gets a question about his racist tweets from over the weekend. They were directed at representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. He told them to go back to their countries, and he said Nancy Pelosi would be happy to work out the travel arrangements. He was trying to deepen divisions between House Democrats. But at this presser, he starts out by denying he was even talking about the so-called squad. Well, I don't mention, I didn't mention names, and uh, I didn't do that, but I will tell you. When reporters try to redirect or confront him, Trump shushes them. Oh, quiet, 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 quiet. He swings into racism, then he backs away, shrugging his shoulders, like... Nothing to see here. And all I'm saying, they want to leave, they can leave. Now, it doesn't say leave forever. It says leave if you want. But what it says... And right now, it's Monday morning. We have a bunch of Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, who have spoken out against his tweets, calling them racist by name. How many Republicans have done the same? Zero. Uh, Elected ones. Does that surprise you? No. Ryan Grimm has been following this controversy from the very beginning. He writes for The Intercept. They don't see any advantage in criticizing Trump. And also, there's the idea that when your opponents are fighting each other, you, you get out of the way. Trump's idea is, is you stoke it. Um, but the, the traditional approach to your internal strife on the side of your opponents is to just, it's just, just let, them, let them go at it. President Trump came to yesterday's press conference prepared to put on a show. He carried notes laying out talking points, talking points about bickering within the Democratic Party. Later, Democrats called Trump's performance a distraction. And they're right. But here's the thing. Trump is right, too, because there is a wrestling match going on for power inside the Democratic Party, one Trump is trying to take advantage of. But this fight... It involves far more people than you think it does. I'm Mary Harris. You are listening to What Next. Stick with us. President Trump got the idea to start tweeting racist ideas about progressives after seeing reports of conflict between House Democrats, especially when it comes to issues around the border. This all started just before July 4th, when Congress passed a $4.6 billion funding bill for ICE and Border Patrol. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley all voted against this measure. They were holding out, hoping for stricter enforcement of health and safety measures for immigrant kids and families. And that's when you you started seeing um, the, the real vitriol kind of pouring out. Ryan Grimm started tracking all this vitriol, which began completely inside the Democratic Party itself. 
So you reported on this meeting that took place after the border bill went through, where Nancy Pelosi tried to sort of bring everyone back together. And it seemed to me that that was really the spark for everything that's happened over the last (laughs) week or two. Can you take me back to that meeting? That's right. So this is the weekly caucus meeting. And Pelosi uh, gave a talk about how staffers for members of Congress should think twice before they tweet a period. And then she said, actually, they shouldn't think twice. They should they should just not do it. Um, and then she looked directly at Ocasio-Cortez and said, um, but it's, it's OK if people are attacking me because every time they do, I raise more money. And when Pelosi started talking about people attacking her online, she meant people like AOC's chief of staff, a guy named Shroykat Chakrabarty. After the border funding bill passed, he'd started calling out House members on Twitter, saying their votes made them sellouts. Can you tell me a little bit who Shroykat Chakrabarty is? So Shroykat, uh, as the Post described him, a Silicon Valley Bernie bro. Um, He was an engineer who was one of the first employees of Stripe, which is that uh, payment processing firm that's, you know, making money from you every time you swipe your credit card. But he got he got fed up with Silicon Valley and quit to join the Bernie Sanders campaign in, in 2015 and was part of its distributed organizing operation, which is you know helping volunteers canvas and phone bag and set up house parties. And he left with a handful of other people in the, the spring of 2016 to try to take the movement to the next level and, and run Bernie Sanders style candidates in all 435 house districts around the country. And they, it was a complete flop. Uh, they, they did not get anywhere near 435 candidates. It was a crazy idea. And as they realized that their project was kind of an utter failure towards uh, the beginning of, of 2018, they, they just pivoted all of their energy into electing one single candidate so that at least they would salvage something and the one that they chose for that was Ocasio-Cortez. So she was like um, a proof of concept. Right. You could call it that. So then uh, Chakrabarty, you know, helped manage, moved to New York, helped manage her campaign. There's a mantra on Capitol Hill that staff should be seen and not heard. And AOC has not implemented that rule um, among her staff. And not only do they speak freely and on the record to reporters, but they're often you know, sharing their opinions on policy, on other members of Congress, on the Speaker of House, on particular primary uh, challengers. So you'll have these situations where several members of her her staff and her campaign will endorse a primary challenger to an incumbent. And then she'll be asked about that challenge and she'll say, well, I actually haven't followed that one yet. You know, so she's maintaining, trying to maintain relationships with, with incumbent Democrats while uh, back in the office or in the campaign office, her her staff are, are not at all shy about making their opinions known. And, and she's not somebody who's going to tell them that they're not entitled to share share their opinion. Well, yeah. And you're kind of <laughs> when you explain all this, it really sounds like AOC came in ready to rumble with a bunch of people who are proud outsiders. Yes. But what's interesting is that I think dispositionally, she's much more of a consensus builder and would prefer that she, like she she sees herself as someone who's um, coming to the Capitol to help, not as someone who's coming there to to burn it all down. But she is very much seen as someone who is there to burn it all down. And so she's 
kind of caught, I think, between her disposition and, and the and the role that she's in and her commitment to, to genuine change. And does that work, though? I mean, you say she's a consensus builder, but I wouldn't be very happy if the staff in my colleague's office was tweeting that I should be primaried. Well, what I meant is that she sees herself as a consensus builder, not that she has yet been a consensus builder. And also, I think what bothers her is that Democrats in swing districts are routinely allowed to vote against the Democratic agenda by saying, you know, I I would love to be there for you, but my district um, just just won't let me. So I have to vote, you know, for X, Y, Z, bad policy. And and you've seen her say that, look, I represent a district that is 50 percent immigrants. I can't just go along with concentration camps on the border for for immigrants like I am I'm driven to represent my constituents and I think she's frustrated that the rationale only seems to hold for people in these frontline swing districts but not for people um, who represent you know marginalized communities of color like the in the Bronx and Queens but Ryan says the bigger problem for Pelosi isn't AOC or AOC's chief of staff because Pelosi's right the squad's only got four votes. There's this other group. And right now they have far more power. Right. It's it is wild. There's this there's a much bigger block of people who are um, fighting Nancy Pelosi from from the right uh, while she you know, is is publicly engaged um, in, in a fight to her left. This more conservative bipartisan caucus, they call themselves the problem solvers. The problem solvers caucus is produced by this dark money group called No Labels. And it is 24 Democrats and it's 24 Republicans. The Democratic co-chair is named Josh Gottheimer. He's a kind of conservative Democrat from a a swing district. And they take a a private vote. And if a a majority, more than 50 percent of Republicans and Democrats in the caucus elect to take a particular position, then they act. Then they act as a caucus, and so they did that around the border bill. They ha- they had their vote, and and they had enough votes to say that. So as a caucus, we're going to vote vote no on this. And with 24 members, that's enough to stop Pelosi from being able to move something through if she can't get Republican votes. And of course, she can't. So you're setting them up. You're saying they're a dark money group, which kind of gives them a feeling like they're bad. But for me. I don't think of bipartisanship as on its face bad. Sure, bipartisanship on its face is is wonderful. People coming together and and working towards a common solution. They are a they're a corporate funded operation that is largely working against the progressive wing of the party. That that's that's ultimately their their agenda. Hmm. And you said that back when Pelosi was running to be speaker, they got themselves involved in that too. Right. They went after Speaker Pelosi and threatened to take her down before she even regained uh, the speakership. They won some very minor concessions as a result of that. It's interesting, though, that the the Problem Solvers Caucus doesn't represent a a fundamental threat to the way that Democrats do business. They're not they're not challenging how the party operates and what the party stands for. You know, they're they're engaged in more kind of tactical fights and, and trying to pull the party to the right a little bit, whereas the squad and, and kind of the, the movement outside the House around them says that, no, like the way that the Democratic Party is organized around big money, around corporate money, 
and the interests that it serves are entirely wrong and it needs to be restructured uh, along these lines. And so I think that explains why, even though it's the, the problem solvers and the right wing that are messing Pelosi up, it's the squad that has her attention. Hmm. It's interesting to me looking at what took place over the last week or two, because it seems so similar to what happened back in January during the first weeks of Congress, where Pelosi was running for speaker and AOC occupied her office to protest Mm -hmm. her take on the Green New Deal. But then in the end, she ended up voting for Pelosi. And it seemed to me and it was the moderate Democrats who actually were the ones fighting Pelosi's Mm -hmm. speakership. And it seems to me like Speaker Pelosi and AOC have this stylistic difference where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sees it as her role to provoke and push things forward in that way to speak to people through Twitter and get people having a conversation that way. And Speaker Pelosi is much more about using that megaphone internally at all of the members of the House. That's true, but there there also is an ideological split at play. And if you look at that occupation around around orientation um, in Pelosi's office, you know she was demanding that Pelosi create a select committee on a Green New Deal that would have authority to produce legislation in in two years. So that if Democrats took the White House in 2020, there would be a framework, a legislative framework to work from. And she was demanding that the, the people on that committee you know, refuse to take uh, fossil fuel money and that the committee be given subpoena power, which is which is how you com- you know not just get documents, but compel testimony. And none of those demands were met. Um, in fact, the, the committee that Pelosi created around climate in 2007 had subpoena power. And now here we are 12 years later, and, and this this one didn't. And so AOC felt like it was far short of, of meeting kind of the scale of the crisis. And so when Pelosi invited her to be on this committee that she did end up creating, uh, AOC turned her down. And the two have not spoken since then. Yeah, it's interesting. I listened to an interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this weekend where she addressed this very moment and how, you know, the last time we talked was when she invited me to be part of the select committee. We don't really have a relationship. And it was interesting because there was no follow up question of, well, okay, let's say you have to compromise in some way. You have three demands. You can only two of them can be met for whatever reason. Like, how are you willing to compromise? And I think that's what's so challenging about this conversation back and forth from the progressive wing and, you know, the more stalwart old school wing where um, to provoke is great. But then the question becomes, how do you get something done? Right. But I think from AOC's perspective, the question is, well, what what was the real price of giving the uh, the committee subpoena power when this precise same select committee 12 years ago had subpoena power. Um, There was, um, as I understand it, no negotiation that, that took place. Ryan thinks of it like this. The split between Nancy Pelosi and her more conservative Democratic members is about votes, or maybe it's about keeping a few seats blue. The battle she's waging with the progressive squad is more existential. It's about the very way power moves in Washington. And he thinks about the disagreements between Pelosi and the squad as a generational divide. What you have to remember is that AOC was born in 1989, the, you know, the year after 
uh, Reagan left office, while people like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer were already into their political formative years, late 70s, early 1980s, when, when Reagan comes in and wipes Jimmy Carter out. And even more importantly, and I go into this in my book, lose Democrats lose 12 Senate seats that year. And, and, and they lose absolute liberal lions, people who had stood for what liberalism meant in the 20th century. And so this identity crisis really strikes Democrats in that period. They, they were already on their heels after uh, McGovern getting wiped out in 1972. And now into power sweeps this this kind of uh, knuckle dragging, you know, C-list actor who's repudiating everything uh, that the party has stood for for um, half a century. Knuckle dragging. And, <laughs> and well, that that's how that that's how uh, Democrats on the coast had viewed um, kind of the the leadership of this this new right movement, um, not as Rockefeller Republicans that had a had a different take on on what the inflation target uh, should be, but as as people who just had a completely different vision of what the United States should be. Yeah, a vision that yeah you could say has taken years, but is you know maybe <laughs> being carried forward at this moment. Right, and, right. and it, so it yeah it convinced the Democrats of that time that the that the way for them to hold on to some modicum of power in this. Uh, what they now understood to be a center-right country or a conservative country was to moderate their their tone and their policies and just try to match Republicans dollar for dollar with corporate money. And that that really is where you see the pivot, you know, toward a kind of high dollar corporate PAC funding approach. And it's it, I'm glad you said that because I feel like it's the shadow conversation behind all of the conversations about these back and forths over Twitter that we're really talking about money and power and who has it and who yep. doesn't when we're not ever saying those words out loud. We're instead talking about cat fights on Capitol Hill. And I just <laughs> I think it's interesting that for, for some reason we're not calling that spade a spade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to a, a number of people who are you know deeply involved in with the, the Democratic donor class and they have they've been saying for months that the the number one thing that high dollar democratic donors want to talk about no matter what the agenda of of the meeting is is Ilhan Omar, AOC and the squad. Why? Um it began with Ilhan Omar the the battle over you know whether or not her comments about um Kevin McCarthy and the APAC and the Benjamins were were anti-semitic but it evolved into you know th this this feeling of crisis that they're that they're losing hold of the the party that there's some some new force is is taking it over that they that they don't understand it and that they think is going to lead to some sort of electoral cataclysm or at least higher taxes or at least potentially higher taxes um, somebody like Nancy Pelosi spends um, an extraordinary amount of time with the Democratic donor class and and so she's been hearing. You know, criticism of the squad since the very beginning, and that donor class has wanted to see them put back in their place. There's there's sort of a contradiction in in Pelosi's claim that they're just four votes and they're utterly powerless, and her behavior the last several weeks. The Speaker of the House doesn't tend to spend weeks on end engaged in a war 
with an entity that's entirely powerless. And, you know, if if they can get to the numbers that the problem solvers caucus have, then all of a sudden the, the power dynamic changes. Ryan Grimm, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. Ryan Grimm is the D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Full disclosure, they have done some work with AOC. Ryan's new book is called We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Ethan Brooks, and Jason DeLeon. If after this conversation, you need a good laugh, and who doesn't, honestly, go on over and check out The Gist. Today's guest is Jason Cinnamon of The New York Times. He's talking about the current state of late-night TV, and he's going to wax nostalgic for David Letterman. I'm Mary Harris. We're going to be back with you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.